Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter number 11. As we journey with Jesus to the cross, the journey begins in Mark, chapter number 11. Jesus sent out two of his disciples into a town just outside of Jerusalem, in the southwest, southeast corner of Jerusalem, asking them if they would go into the town and find a donkey who was tied up there. And they told them, bring that donkey back here so that I can use that donkey to ride into Jerusalem. And if anybody asks you what you're doing, tell them the master has need of the donkey. So they went to the town where they were supposed, where they were supposed to get the, maybe it was a little bit like the rural Nebraska pastor who told me that there isn't another town for 30 miles around. So he leaves the keys in his vehicle in case anybody needs to use it. And he said, if they try to steal it, I mean, all they got to do is call 30 miles to the next town. The sheriff will be waiting for him and we'll get my car back. So it's not a big deal. Maybe that's what the donkey thing was kind of like. So as the disciples went, they discovered the donkey right where they were told it would be Jesus who was always right about the things. They untied the donkey and some said, hey, you there, what are you doing with the donkey? And the disciples answered, the master has need of the donkey. Oh, okay, go ahead and take him. As though that settled the matter. <laughs> Probably with no idea what was about to happen, completely clueless that they were about to become part of history and their donkey would also become famous throughout history. You can follow along with me in Mark chapter number 11, verses 1 through 11. Did you know that King Solomon rode into Jerusalem on a donkey some 1,000 years earlier? Now, 1,000 years later, Solomon's descendant gathers a donkey for a fateful ride into Jerusalem. Jesus probably took a different route than Solomon took, but the similarity danced in the minds of the people as they saw Jesus mount a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. Everybody was familiar with the story of Solomon's coronation. They knew what was happening. Everyone was familiar with the prophecies. They knew what was happening. And as Jesus got onto that donkey that day, everything started to unfold in a spectacular fashion. Before long, he had mounted the donkey and began the three-mile ride into Jerusalem. The road winds a little bit, and you start, he started before he could see the city of Jerusalem around to the side of the Mount of Olives. And as he, as he cleared that, it was kind of like driving into St. Louis. You know, for a while you can see the arch, and then you can't see the arch because of the hills on the Illinois side. And then suddenly the arch unfolds, and someone in my vehicle will scream in my ear, I see it. <laughs> But recently, I've been the one who spotted the arch because I'm pretty good at those things and I always distract them. Ben is so easily distracted right outside of St. Louis. Ben, what's that? Oh, I see the arch. <laughs> As they rounded the Mount of Olives, they could see the city of Jerusalem in the distance and Jesus was riding on top of the donkey. As they all caught sight of the city, Jesus himself was overcome with pity and compassion for the city and passion in his heart. And he wept as he saw, as he saw Jerusalem before him, according to Luke's account. And they continued their triumphal march into the city. And as the crowds gathered and word spread about what was happening, a great noise began to well up around them. And people began to gather around. Somewhere along the journey, perhaps as soon as Jesus started his journey into Jerusalem, Someone began to shout and to yell and to chant and they were singing and there was all sorts of a commotion. And as the crowd multiplied, various approaches to worship paraded through the hills outside of Jerusalem. And everyone was able to see all of these spectacles of worship taking place that day. 
The cries, the mob picked up people with every step of the donkey. People spilled out of the city because there were plenty of people there that day. It was like a modern day storming of the court after a basketball, an important basketball win. People lived all around the city and they began to gather and mob Jesus as he was going into Jerusalem one step at a time. Every now and then the donkey would have to stop so that they could clear the road in front of him so that Jesus could take another step with the donkey. People were taking off their coats, not that kind of coat, a different. They were taking off their coats and waving them because they dressed in layers and waving them around like some ladies in a church I visited who would wave their decorative scarves during a point in time in worship and they were lining the road with them. Some had decided that they would start to pick branches, probably not way up off the top of trees, but branches from um, small weed-like things that grew up there and they cut them off at the ground and began to wave those things and they glazed the road in front of them so that Jesus could ride in almost like on a red carpet, a sea of coats and cloths and, and people's garments that they had taken off and, and branches and everything was there for them to go into the city. They had their king. They chanted, they lauded, they sang. Everything else imaginable as they descended upon Jerusalem. A crowd larger than normal because it was Passover season and they spilled out and began to envelop this small band of people as they entered the city. They had their king, they thought. The one who came as the son of David. The one who was the rightful heir to the Jewish throne. The one who was under the power of Jehovah. He was a prophet. The one who had been prophesied about, they thought. And they hoped he would become their king that day. They beheld him as their deliverer. Latching on to him as the one who had been prophesied about. And as they made their way into Jerusalem... Someone probably stopped one of the disciples to ask what was going on. And the disciples all too eagerly told the, the people within the crowd what was going on. Proudly exclaiming that this was their Savior. He'd come to save them from the ills of Rome and the troubles that had plagued their society, they thought. And then someone whispered, he's also the king. Well, that was all this group of people needed. Someone who could overthrow the power of great Rome. Someone who could set them free and, free and once again, like Solomon, ride on a mule into the city and overtake everything else that was around them. They danced and really whipped up a storm. This was more of a spectacle than if the bears somehow managed to beat the Packers four times in a year. But was that the other way around? They crowned him as, they, as their king. They knew he could become their king. In fact, some thought that this parade was the coronation. Why would you think anything else? Solomon had done it, and people of that era, if you have a king, you're into pomp, circumstance, and tradition. Why not go in just like the great Solomon had gone in? They indulged themselves so proudly that day. Chanted and sang. sang. Hey, let's, let's get a flavor for that for just a moment, shall we? So I need to break you into three different groups. What happens if we put all of this together? On the count of three, everybody say what they're supposed to say and say it three times. Now, now imagine, now imagine that there aren't just 150 to 200 of you. There are 20,000 of you shouting the same thing over and over again. 
And you could hear this grand shout coming up long before they ever reached the streets of Jerusalem. There are people shouting. Try it again. And the crowd went wild. They were, they were cutting down branches and waving all of those, waving all of their coats that they, had, that, that they had taken off so that they could line the streets, shouting and glazing the road and, and, and all of these things. where They were indulging themselves with a great fervor, dancing around. And be, because there was a Jewish uprising and a Jewish gathering, somebody grabbed a chair and a dad sat on top of the chair and they started to dance. That's what happened at the bat mitzvah I went to, so I'm assuming that it's ancient. And they were doing all these things. Maybe it's the ancient tradition. Maybe someone grabbed a, a plate and they started to break things because it's a wild celebration. And maybe they were rioting and maybe someone started a fire because that seems to happen in celebrations when you win something or something great is happening. Maybe there's who knows what was taking place. But I know that just as quickly as they joined the chorus... The self-indulgent crowd would within days turn on the one that they crowned and they would cry, crucify him. They went from... To within just four days, screaming, crucify him, crucify him, kill him, give us Barabbas and kill that man. Because self-indulgence is fickle, and it turns on a dime. And when your worship is filled with that kind of a self-indulgence, it is not about being expressive. It is about doing it out of a self-indulgence and a pride that leads to a lot of excesses just for the sake of enjoying the expresses of those excesses. And it turns on one thing here or there. What's in it for me? I don't like the feeling today, and now I'm like the feeling over here of shouting, crucify him. They saw Jesus and they said, don't overturn another table. Don't curse another fig tree. Don't argue with the Pharisees one more time. And the self-indulgent, it is a serious matter. It is the essence of I deserve this. And it leads to jealousy, the pursuit of self-satisfaction and not the will of Jesus. And so the crowd who had screamed so wildly turned and turned on Jesus in just days. Because that's what the pride of self-indulgence will do. They turned as they were stirred up. According to Luke, in the story that's in Luke, the Pharisees were there, the teachers, the religious leaders, the people who led the Jewish nation in their religion at the time. They were there and they heard what was happening. I mean, how could you not hear such a shout from 20,000 people? How could you not know what was happening? They had to wind through a valley to get there between the Temple Mount, which sat on top of the temple, sat on top of a mountain, right on the edge of Jerusalem. And just across a little ways was the Mount of Olives. Well, whenever you go through a valley, there's always the noise and the echo effect. And it, it was clear what was, that something was taking place. And so the religious leaders went out there and they were, they were none too keen to see the uproar. They did not like this at all. They recognized immediately what was happening. They knew the donkey because they knew the story. They knew the prophecy, and they knew who he was claiming to be, and they weren't very happy about it. They looked on, and they would have grabbed him to kill him, but they saw 20,000 people, there's only a couple hundred of us, the odds aren't really in our favor, let's just go out and watch, and we'll, we'll wait for our own day. They saw the crowd, and they knew that the crowd was claiming triumph, but they never bought any of it. 
They were there in the crowd and they got a little angry and every time the crowd would shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the the coming kingdom of our father David. Every time they heard that, the Pharisees would cringe a little bit. Then someone next to them in the other way would push them back as they were waving a branch and another Pharisee would cringe and shove the guy back a little bit. They urged the people to stop. They urged the disciples to stop it, and the disciples ignored them. And then finally they urged Jesus to stop it, according to Luke 19. And Jesus said, stop. Stop what? Stop the shouting? Stop the, stop the teaching? It was then that the Pharisees dreamed up the cross and what would happen. All of the wrong reasons and all of the wrong motivations entered their heart as the arrogance caused them to try to stop what was taking place, convincing them that they were oh so right and everyone else was oh so wrong. It's kind of amazing to me how when we come to worship, we can sometimes be convinced that we are oh so right with what we do and everybody else must be oh so wrong. They believe that they were so superior And everything revolved around them. It drove them to take Jesus down. And Jesus replied to them and they said, why don't you stop this? He said, well, if I did, you see the rocks over there, guys? Now, that's not a really stupid question if we stepped outside here. There's a lot of grass and there might be a few rocks around, but we could look out there at the gravel, I suppose. This wasn't Wisconsin, however. This is Jerusalem. The reason why they stoned people to death is because that's all they had was stones and rocks around. They grew rocks kind of like we grow corn. There were rocks everywhere. So when they said, do you see the rocks? Well, how could you not see rocks? They're everywhere. And Jesus said, do you, do you see the rocks and the stones? If I tell the people to be quiet, the rocks and stones will cry out today. It's like sitting in a football stadium and saying, well, if we stop cheering, the bleachers are going are gonna to scream out and cheer. We're in a forest saying, well, we can stop cheering, we can stop talking, but the trees will, will scream all the louder. Theirs was a worship built on an arrogance and a pride, and it destroys you. It is proud of worshiping. It is proud of doing that better than anyone else. And it is most acceptable of all sins to all people, the sin of pride. Well, we like to set it aside and not like it in other people. We are all the more ready to coddle it in ourselves, to allow ourselves to be as arrogant as we want to be. And in the church world, those of you who come to my Wednesday night Bible study, you, you know that, I, that I'm pretty convinced that in the church world, we accept, in fact, promote people who are arrogant rather than the humble. Well, as the crowds began to pick up, the disciples were there, and they no doubt had a part in this whole thing. I mean, what could the disciples, how could this have gotten going if it wasn't for the disciples? This had to be someone's idea. It has all the makings of Peter, doesn't it? A loud shouting mob, that just sounds like Peter's kind of thing. That Peter's right at home there, everyone's shooting off their mouth and they're screaming and they're yelling and and waving things around and cutting down branches. And no doubt, the disciples were egging everyone on, planning it, telling the first person, hey, take your coat off and put it right in front of the donkey there. And then another disciple said, hey, that's a good idea. And maybe all 12 of them participated in that once everybody saw what was going. The disciples were popular people. 
For the first time, some of these fishermen had people coming up to them, trying to get something from them. Relishing their newfound fame, the disciples egged everyone else on. Backed by people who were in the crowd. Backing up the crowd when they got too close. Believing that for three years and their three years of service to Jesus had finally paid off. They threw down the first coats. They whipped people up when there was a lull. They tried to keep things going, enjoying the power that they had found with people. Would they abuse their power? Most do, unless it comes from their own cross and being crucified on it. Would the disciples abuse their own power? I don't know. Two of them said, we think we're the best. Everyone else can do whatever they want. Seat me on your right and, some, and him on the left. Would they abuse their power? Less than a week later, Peter would pull out a sword and cut a man's ear off. Would they abuse their power? One of them, for 30 pieces of silver, would sell out the master. Would they abuse their power? Most of us do. Most of us do. The temptation is so strong. It can lead to manipulation and total conceit. Being a bully and selfish decisions... I should know, pastors have a little bit of power from time to time. Sometimes we don't think so, but then, but then you hand one of us a, a reference form and say, I kind of need this so I can go to college. And you look at it and say, you have not been such a nice person. Why should I do this for you? Do you remember what you said about me a year ago and my wife two years ago? Are you really sure I should do this for you? We have sometimes just a little bit of power. And so I understand the allure and the draw of power. And I understand where the disciples were at that day. And I know how it impacts your worship. You're there in form, but in body, you're thinking about yourself. It's kind of like self-indulgence. Only your object is, more, is grabbing more and more and more of it. Now this crowd managed to get inside of the city and the whole city was moved and stirred by everything that was happening. They all heard what was there and they all wanted to know who was this. It wasn't that big of a city in A.D. 30. They all would have known what was going on. And this was no mere curiosity. This was something beyond that, a relentless pursuit for a desperate people who in their soul longed for a Messiah. They had ushered him into the city. They were there to sing His praises. And there was Jesus. Realizing the temptation of pride and of power in many different forms. Knowing what was happening. You can't ride into a city as a king with a large crowd of people shouting without the temptation of pride entering your heart. But Jesus understood what had happened and what was taking place. And His vision that day was clearly upon the cross. And as a king, he knew that this was an important moment. But he also knew that for him, he had to keep his mind on the cross and what would soon take place. He remained a picture of perfect humility because his vision had been corrected by the cross. Even in the triumphal entry, when they shouted that this was the prophet, he knew what that meant. He looked around and he saw his friend Lazarus there in the crowd, the one whom he had raised from the dead, lining the road. He saw Nicodemus there, the one who had gone to him secretly and said, What do I have to do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus had said, You have to be born again. Many others were there. No doubt, Mary Magdalene was along that road, going along with the crowd, the one from whom he had cast out seven demons. No, I'm not going to explain that one today. All of the people, a lot of the people who were there were people who had heard him preach. 
Some of the people there were people who he had healed. He had performed miracles for them with them there. No doubt, someone who had eaten of the loaves and the fish was on that road that day shouting and screaming. And Jesus saw them all. And he had compassion in his heart upon them. And he looked at the city and compassion overwhelmed him because he understood the moment. Jesus entered the city through the gate that leads right into the temple area. It's a gate uh, at that time in Jerusalem that led right into the temple area. And, and Jesus entered into that gate. Mark says that he waited until the next day to visit. Matthew and Luke make it sound like it was the same day. doesn't really matter. What we do know is that, the, is that sometime around there, that day or the following day, Jesus would go into the courts of the Gentiles in the temple. And he would see everybody who was there buying and selling sheep and all sorts of animals for sacrifice. And it would disturb him. This wasn't a new thing. He'd been there before. He had seen them selling before, but that day, he looked around and he said, this is supposed to be so the Gentiles can come and worship. That's me. That's you. He looked around and he said, this is not supposed to be the case. My house is supposed to be a house where all nations can come and pray. And you have turned the court of Gentiles into a den of thieves. How dare you do that? And he drove out the money changers and the people selling their livestock. And the unraveling of the claim of triumph began that moment as the crowd saw that he, what he was doing in the temple. Yet he was relentless as a great high priest saying, this should not be. Worship is supposed to be different than this. Others heard him teach and they wondered. They wondered in the, as the fickle crowd began to turn against him. And so for those of you who are writing, trying to find an outline somewhere in here, it isn't really that hard. We see in the crowd the pride of self-indulgence. We see in the scribes and the Pharisees the pride of arrogance. We see in the disciples the pride of self-importance and power. And we see in Jesus a parade of humility. Because self-indulgence always turns. It is fickle. It can worship one moment and it can have illicit sex an hour or two later. That's what self-indulgence will do to you. It is superficial, lacking all substance. The pride of arrogance relentlessly pursues its own agenda, even in worship. It is without heart, and it is only concerned with the appearance and the form that you are going through, whatever that form might be. The people who are drunk on power turn worship into a chance to increase their grab for it. And there is Jesus setting forth the true example of what worship ought to be. Coming into the city, worshiping his father as he did, knowing that he was coming in as king, and knowing that all of his worship was returned to the Father himself. The Pharisees, they were proud, offended at the spectacle because of their pride. The disciples were proud and cherished their newfound power. The crowd was proud but fickle, and they adored the idea of overthrowing Rome. But Jesus kept his perspective because his eyes were on the cross. And he remained humble because true worship is not about form. It's not about silence or expression. It's not about, it is about coming to the king before the king with a humble heart and saying, King Jesus, I am here before you. Will you accept me? And the true scandal is when he turns and looks at you and says, of course. 
in spite of everything you've done and who you are, here you are coming to me in worship and I will forgive you of all that you have done and accept you and bring you in. And it's scandalous because I'm so helpless on my own to do anything about the sin problem in my life. And he who knew no sin was the one who was willing to take care of it for me. And so I wonder today, since when you have come to worship, if you see yourself in the crowd somewhere, maybe standing off to the side as the teachers looking and saying, this is a bit of a, of a spectacle. What are they doing? Why do they indulge themselves so much? Maybe you're right in the thick of the crowd, but you're not in it with a heart that's pure before God. Or maybe you've come today and you've looked and you've said inside of your heart, I am not where I ought to be, O oh God, but I want to be there. And if that is the case, then this is your moment. This is your moment to say, I'm not where I should be with God, but I want to take care of that right now. So everyone, if you would close your eyes, please, because that person wants to have a personal moment with God. And in their personal moment with God, they want to be able to commit to Him. No doubt God has been speaking to your heart throughout our service this morning. And as He has spoken, you are hearing Him tap on your shoulder. You heard Him when we were singing. You thought maybe it was just the style that was different. It wasn't. It was the Spirit of the Lord drawing you. You've heard the sermon, and the Spirit of the Lord has continued to draw you. And at this very moment now, you wish to say, and I want to commit. I want my life to be different. I want my heart to be pure before God, and I want to purely follow Him. I want my approach to worship to be pure. And if that's the case this morning, there's very good news for you. You might be incapable on your own of doing that. Because all of us have done things that separate us from God. All of us have sinned. But Jesus, He came. He marched into the city so that when, he, when you opened your heart, He could come into your heart, as we've heard this morning. And you could make Him king of your own heart. And He could wash your sins away and forgive you and draw you in. And if that's you this morning and you say, I'm in need of doing that. I am not where I ought to be with God. And this morning I would like to come to Him and make sure that I am right with Him. If that's you, would you just slip your hand up in commitment to God this morning? I wonder this morning if perhaps you see yourself in the story and say, my worship is not as authentic this morning as it ought to be. And I would like to come before God and have my worship be authentic and true and pure. After examining your heart this morning, if your worship is not where it ought to be, and you'd like to commit to God, to have your worship be authentic and pure, would you just slip your hand up before Him? Say, God, I'm committing that to you. Uh, hands all, all across the room as people are saying, I'm not sure that my worship is where it ought to be. And I want to make an adjustment to that. I want my worship to be pure before God. Thanks. You can put your hands down if they're still up. Would you all stand with me, please? And...